Hey, it's Jordan. I am delighted to be joined by Max Blumenthal of The Gray Zone. And uh, finally, some, some good news. Um, for those that don't know, the frivolous charges uh, you were dealing with uh, from, I mean, I guess D.C., but really the U.S. government uh, was behind those charges uh, were dropped. So before we get to kind of what the charges were and all that, um, can you kind of give us an idea this came months later after your reporting at the Venezuelan embassy. Uh, and kind of for those that don't know what happened uh, on the morning you were arrested. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, thanks for having me on. And thanks to everyone who's been so supportive of me through this ordeal. Um, and uh, f everybody who has been uh, calling for me to be in prison for a false charge. I'm in the middle of a long Twitter thread uh, just exposing everyone who cheered on my arrest. Um, and, you know, there are some major pundits in there. Um, but uh, basically on May 8th in the early morning, um, there were a number of Activists and journalists, including two close colleagues of mine, close friends, uh, Alex Rubenstein and Anya Parampil, inside the Venezuelan embassy. All of these people were there defending international law against a Trump administration coup attempt in Venezuela. They were there with the permission of the UN-recognized Venezuelan government, and they were surrounded by a mob of violent right-wing Venezuelan uh, diaspora hooligans. Uh, who were connected to Juan Guaido's operation in D.C., which was basically, you know, funded and supported by the U.S. government. And it was pretty clear that these this element was working hand in glove with the Secret Service special police who were operating under the auspices of the State Department. And their goal was to starve out the activists um, and prevent them from receiving sanitary supplies, medicine. Um, they ultimately got the city to cut off electricity and water. And uh, my goal and the goal of those of us on the outside was to get them food in a completely legal and nonviolent fashion. The Secret Service had told us you're allowed to deliver food. And it looked like they were just using these hooligans um, who were camping out around the embassy uh, to, as a proxy for to do what they couldn't do because they couldn't legally obstruct food. So uh, we brought food on the morning of May eighth and basically just walked to the embassy and dropped food off to the activists inside to the chagrin of um, the you know opposition activists and we you know we caught them by surprise and it wasn't the only food delivery um, everything was done completely legally and nonviolently I didn't touch anybody I don't even think anybody touched me um, but you know I was identified on camera, on one of the cell phone cameras, and they said, oh shit, this is Max Blumenthal. He's one of our top journalistic critics. That's what I think happened. Um, you know, His site, The Gray Zone, has been going after us and actually doing structural damage to our coup. Um, you know, we, we've ultimately, I mean, we've done enormous damage to them uh, journalistically with facts. And so I think I was targeted. Five months later, police showed up at my door. By the way, I was documenting the whole everything that was happening behind the scenes, um, you know, wondering if one day it could come out as part of a documentary or something. So I was also conducting journalism at the time. 
but yeah, I was trying to, I'm, a, I'm an editor and I'm trying to get food to the journalists inside who are embedded and, and, uh, I want, and I'm also an activist. I wanted to keep the operation going, uh, in, to defend international law, to obstruct this insane, violent, illegal coup. So anyway, five months later, DC police show up in the morning, uh, drag me out of my house. They threatened to break down my door if I didn't let them in. Um, it was a team of cops. I learned later that I'd been listed as um, armed and dangerous, which is a designation that um, three, is, it appears on 3% of arrest warrants. You Almost always for people who have a previous record of homicide or who are on the run for a violent crime. I don't have any of that. And I spent two days in jail. Um, you know, being in jail and like central booking and then going through all of the different processes where U.S. Marshals anally search you and everything, uh, then being shackled in a cold box while you wait for a judge to call on you. It's pretty excruciating and it's what, you know, my uh, mostly uh, poor and working class black neighbors often go through. Um, so I'm not like alone in that regard. But, you know, you don't get a call to a lawyer. You don't get a call to anyone. Um, if no one had witnessed my arrest, there wouldn't have been, no one would have known I was in there. Um, so, you know, the whole process was agonizing and um, I got out, was released on my own recognizance. Um, and uh, last week on Thursday, just, so- Just to back up, you weren't allowed yeah, a phone call either. I was not allowed a phone call. No. Um, luckily, um, Bill Moran, who served as my- Valiant counsel, um, heard, you know, about heard that I'd been arrested because people were there to witness the arrest. And so he showed up. Um, but that's the only way that, you know, that basically if you get, if you get locked up in DC, um, it's very difficult to make a phone call. They don't expect you to really assert your rights, even though everybody does and people know their rights. And then they eventually put you in this box the following day where you're on the other side of bulletproof glass and public defenders sort of show up for a few people. Otherwise, I mean, just to t give you a few details of what it's like in there, I mean, you're, 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 you're either in a cell with one cellmate that's a five by seven cell with a toilet and a barely functional water fountain and a bologna sandwich for like 14 hours and then you're thrown in various boxes with like 50 to 80 guys and uh, people who are mentally ill and unable to function are thrown in that box with you because they're just picked up on the street for being homeless or missing bail or whatever. And um, those people are, 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 they just basically wait around and then they just get shackled and a US marshal physically drags them in front of a judge, a magistrate judge. And there's just a, a public defender who shows up for them and the public defenders, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a factory line where they just have one person after another, one poor person or a mentally ill person that they have to defend. Um, so it's really shocking to witness that. But you know what I was jailed for was a false charge concocted by a Venezuelan opposition activist. The Venezuelan opposition obviously thought about how they wanted to go about this, and so they found who they thought would be the most sympathetic person, who was a 59 or 58 year old woman. Um, and so they wanted to say, you know, I attacked a woman along with Benjamin Rubenstein, who was um, with me at the time. Um, and so we were just identified. But there were like 20 people involved in delivering food. 
Uh, nobody on our side attacked anybody, as far as I know. It was completely nonviolent. But we were ID'd. I'm like the high-profile guy they wanted to go after. Ben is the brother of Alex Rubenstein, a frequent contributor to the Gray Zone. And so, yeah, they went after us because of who we were. We were politically persecuted. Five months after this happened, though, they showed up at my door. And I don't know how the warrant just sat around for all that time. I was told that a judge actually rejected the warrant. I don't know why it was executed, but the prosecutor threw out the case after it became clear first that the Secret Service call logs of that night, it May 8th, like around 3 a.m., had mysteriously disappeared. Um, I don't know why they disappeared, but you could maybe uh, theorize that they didn't want certain records to come out proving their collusion with this right-wing mob of violent hooligans. Um, the other, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know why else they would have destroyed evidence like that. And then there was the fact that there was no evidence against me because I'm completely innocent. I didn't kick any 58-year-old woman. Um, and if anything, the people on our side were consistently being assaulted. I mean, if you were at the embassy, you were going to be assaulted by these fanatics, either verbally or physically. Um, if you were a person of color, if you uh, were, you know, trans or queer or whatever, if you were a woman, they were going to say something homophobic, racist or sexist to you. And they you were likely to get assaulted if you tried to do anything like get food inside. So in any case, uh, I'm completely cleared. And uh, I think we need to look at uh, securing justice so this doesn't happen again because it's really uh disturbing that somebody can just accuse you of something you didn't do for political reasons and then a team of police shows up at your door assuming you're armed and dangerous and anything can happen there and then you have to spend two days in this really agonizing uh through, going through this really agonizing experience of prison and then you know if i had had to go through all of this if the charges hadn't been dropped i would have had to throw down like ten thousand dollars on lawyers so that, that could happen to anyone involved in activism or journalism unless uh, we take some form of recourse here. So I'm exploring my options. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people will look at this and think this is something that just began because Trump is president and, um, you know, we have right wing uh, fascists in the government. But if you look back to Standing Rock uh, and even before that, uh, there's been kind of extra judicial uh, activities like this happening in America uh, for a long time. And uh, in the case of the Venezuelan embassy collective, um, international law was violated uh, throughout because the activists and journalists had permission by uh, Venezuelan leaders to be there, uh, as did journalists that were covering it. So uh, it seems that it's kind of this up is down House of Mirrors type of thing that the people supposed to be enforcing the law are allowing right wing fanatics to to break the law. You know, we documented it, and and Alex Rubenstein documented it very well at Mint Press. Um, the 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 racism and the fanaticism and the violence of that opposition mob was on full display in the middle of a neighborhood in Washington D.C. This multicultural city. Uh, you know, if you can imagine, and this was a pro-Trump right-wing mob, you can imagine if they were white nationalists uh, who displayed a lot of the same behaviors, 
there wouldn't have been the Washington Post coming down there and writing these obvious uh, hit jobs on the peace activists that completely presented the whole spectacle from a pro-opposition, pro-Guaido frame. Um, and the Washington Post even reported the false allegations against me and Ben Rubenstein uh, without naming us because um, these opposition fanatics had a press conference where they accused us of violence. Uh, but there was no follow-up. The Washington Post didn't show up when I was arrested. Didn't it was? I mean, this is a really high-profile incident. You you saw you saw you knew about it from the beginning because everyone on Twitter was talking about it, and alternative media was writing about it. And these you know regime change uh, blue check marks were celebrating my arrest, but the Washington Post didn't touch it. There was no follow-up at all because it would have shown the Venezuelan opposition in a very bad light, along with the DC police who took no, did, made no effort to investigate this, and the Secret Service who were colluding with the right-wing opposition, who were just, who were like um, sort of a Venezuelan, the Venezuelan analog of the Charlottesville neo-Nazis. I mean, the, the, this was a fascistic mob that was violent and racist and sexist and was basically holding an occupation around an embassy that they wanted to take over in violation of international law. And so right now we're what, six months on from that incident and we should, we can put it in an international framework and look at it in a broader way. Who is the Trump administration actually dealing with right now in Venezuela? They're dealing with the Maduro administration, which was elected and is recognized by the UN, which controls all institutions of the state, but there's no embassy here. Juan Guaido's operation is run by this former ExxonMobil tax lawyer named Carlos Vecchio, who's set up this caucus with Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, and Mario Diaz-Balart in Congress to push regime change, but he controls nothing in Washington. It's so obvious that the Trump administration is dealing with the Venezuelan government. They're doing all of these kind of um, sanctions waivers for Chevron. And to do that, they have to deal with the Maduro administration. So they've implicitly recognized the Maduro administration. Juan Guaido is in trouble for all of these corruption allegations. He's losing public support. Only 10% of the Venezuelan public trusts him, according to the most recent poll. He's done. The coup is over. And so we have four more people on trial facing a year in prison and $100,000 fines. Uh, Adrian Pine, David Paul, uh, Kevin Zeese, and Margaret Flowers. The last two actually were involved in starting Occupy DC. They're, these are, these are, these are you know, some of the best progressive anti-war activists this country has to offer. And they're on trial for a year for being illegally in the embassy. Um, and that prosecution is predicated on the notion that Carlos Vecchio is actually the legitimate ambassador and Juan Guaido is actually the president of Venezuela. So it's predicated on a hallucination. It's predicated on Elliot Abrams fever dreams and not on reality. And so that's shocking too. We need to consider that too. So I hope, you know, we don't just look at this in terms of a journalist being persecuted uh, by an element that's actually backed by the US government, but that activists in general are being put on trial for a complete lie when they had every right to be in that embassy, just as the legitimate Venezuelan government does. And let me ask you, because I mean, I've kind of experienced some dicey situations as a journalist. 
Um, there's very few. There's very few actually like in the field, independent journalists. Of course, there's yeah, it's doc- hard to do. Yeah, there's documentary filmmakers, and there's obviously uh, aspiring people that we might not uh, know of yet. But uh, in terms of alternative, uh, progressive uh, field journalists, there's very few. So it seems like, like you said, this is an effort, whether it's a foreign government or uh, coordinating with uh, domestic uh, law enforcement, uh, to try and kind of eliminate those journalists. How can we protect ourselves, uh, not just journalists, but activists that do forms of journalism going forward? Because, you know, it's not like uh, incidents like this uh, aren't going to pop up again. It's not like there's not going to be more protests where you have uh, anti-war people up against these uh, right-wing groups. I mean, I, uh, as far as, you know, us protecting ourselves, uh, one thing that this incident showed is that the uh, sort of press freedom organizations are not going to protect us and that they're not, they don't actually exist to defend press freedom. They exist to defend U.S. empire, particularly the Committee to Protect Journalists. It's just obvious what, and actually they just had their award ceremony in Washington and brought a bunch of uh, regime change activists who are not even known as journalists in their own country, um, like Cien Percento Noticias from Nicaragua, um, up for to meet with Mike Pence. The Committee to Protect Journalists brought them to a meeting with Mike Pence, and then they honored them on stage. Um, but you know, obviously, they said nothing about me. Um, they've been very muted on Julian Assange, who is facing, I think, 150 years in prison, and you know, could be extradited to the U.S., a country he's not citizen of and tortured in, in and, and, and interrogated and possibly tortured as Chelsea Manning, I think, has experienced torture. So and what would Julian Assange um, be hauled over here for journalism, publishing, just embarrassing the empire? What is, what is the protection for Julian Assange? We don't really have any protection. So I was lucky enough uh, to have Bill Moran step up for me, actually a few years ago, uh, when I started falling under a obviously coordinated uh, you know, attack machine, aiming to paint me and the gray zone as this kind of uh, R- Russian controlled um, secret fascist operation. And you know, I, I know you know Bill as well. Um, he's been a real ally. He's never asked for anything from me. Um, he's just a, a courageous, person who's like an angel, but we really need lawyers to step up. If you're a lawyer, if you're, if you're legally trained and, and, uh, you know, you care about the work we're doing, we need people to step up. And, uh, you know, we, obviously we can set up kind of, you know, do fundraisers for them, but there has to be some kind of uh, network of lawyers to defend independent journalists who are doing the kind of work we're doing. Um, and obviously if you're, you know, you got to, if you're watching this, support status coup and support the work I'm doing because we're, you know, we don't have like um, global billionaires, uh, pay, you know, paying our bills and uh, we're not state funded either. So uh, it's a tough position to be in. Um, it's why media is shrinking. The media is collapsing. It's why there are so few independent journalists who are able to go out in the field Um and then there's no, there's now a obvious crackdown on the work we're doing. And you know, I, I should mention that me being arrested and this false allegation is not the only um, 
attack we're facing exploiting the legal system to shut us down. Um, and I'll be saying more about that in the coming days, but that's really all I can say for now. But there is a clear operation uh, involving powerful elements to shut us down, to silence us. Uh, I want to switch topics for a second. Um, with this distortion, and you kind of said, like, uh, unreality, you guys have been doing a, lo a lot of follow-up reporting on the uh, Duma attacks, or alleged attacks, uh, from last year in Syria, and a second whistleblower recently came out uh, to basically show, like, physics and <laughs> technological information that was suppressed. And it seems that uh, the original report uh, was lacking pretty much the majority of the evidence to show that there wasn't a, a, a chemical attack there. And uh, actually, I don't know if you noticed, but yesterday a Newsweek reporter actually announced on Twitter that he resigned <laughs> from Newsweek yeah. because they were trying to suppress this Newsweek. Uh, Tariq Haddad uh, resigned yeah. because... He was trying to report information that he had uh, gathered uh, that cast doubt on this attack, too. Uh, can you kind of talk about, because it seems like, uh, you know, in, in the case of the Venezuelan embassy, obviously the Secret Service was working with the Venezuelan opposition. But in the case of Syria, it, it seems like there's a lot of uh, distortions and just concocted information. And, and groups like Bellingcat uh, are very uh, involved with that. Absolutely. And the groups like Bellingcat are very involved in the campaign to silence us. Um, and Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat, was pushing phony information about my arrest on the day of. So or, or the you know, the day that the warrant was revealed. So um, I actually went through Duma recently in September and I saw Duma uh, and I was with a former resident of Duma who had to leave because um Part of his prop because part of his property was being turned into a recruitment center by Jaysh al-Islam, the Saudi-funded U.S. armed extremist militia. Um, it was bad, and you know what he told me was what so many Syrians told me. This wasn't someone who worked for the Syrian government, by the way. Um, it was that we were watching this whole operation where the government was taking back the eastern suburbs of Damascus. They were winning. They'd taken almost everything back except this little pocket where there was one extremist wing of Jaysh al-Islam that refused to negotiate. And then all of a sudden, the White Helmets, which the US and the UK funded as part of their perception management operations, came forward and said, oh, there's a chemical attack. And every time the Syrian military was gaining territory and the world was watching, there would be some allegation of a chemical attack. So. What he said is, you know, we knew there wasn't a chemical attack. There was no need for the government to do it. Uh, they had won already, but there was a, a strong need for a defeated opposition to do it because what happens when you allege a chemical attack and you can plausibly convince the government in Washington that one occurred? The red line is tripped. The red line was stupidly imposed by Obama under pressure from Israeli and Gulf intelligence and yeah, as a former uh, Obama advisor told uh, Charles Glass in Harper's, a red line is an invitation for a false flag. And so that's what we saw in Duma. Um, we had journalists come in there like Robert Fisk and to, you know, interview people who said there was no chemical attack. Witnesses were put forward. Unfortunately, they were put forward by the Russian government, but they were just people, common people from Duma 
who were actually videotaped, including a child being videotaped, being hosed off by white helmets and members of the State Department funded Syrian American Medical Society in, in and around Duma. And they said, no, there was no chemical attack. They just started spraying us with water for no reason. And we were lied to. And then you have this whole operation in the US to convince the public that a chemical attack actually occurred to justify the fact that the Trump administration actually bombed Syria on the basis of what was a complete lie. And besides the New York Times, which worked with this shady group forensic architecture to show these um, cartoon images of a chlorine canister falling on a bed to demonstrate how it was done. I think they won an award for that cartoon show. Um, besides, you know, Robert Mackey, this New York Times retread who got hired by The Intercept, um, to, who, who attacked all of the skeptics on Duma as crazy conspiracists. Um, aside from all that, you have Bellingcat, which was not just kind of uh, involved in influencing the mindset of the American public and trying to cultivate support for attacking Syria. It appears that they were involved in the OPCW investigation as a substitute for actual scientific field investigators. And this is an organization that never leaves their bedrooms. They don't go into the field. That's the whole point of them. They just basically create a case using what they call um, crowdsourced journalism or open source journalism uh, that you know Russia or Syria did this or that evil thing. And in this case, uh, they are, are really on the defensive because they apparently contributed to a phony OPCW report that was doctored um, in which three US officials came to the OPCW and began threatening its investigative team and demanding that they push the official line, which they sort of proceeded to do in a very uh, harebrained fashion. And so they said there were organo chlorophosphates. There were organophosphate chlorine was present on the scene, which means that there could have been bleach there. Pretty much there could have been a swimming pool nearby, could have been house cleaner, but nobody proved that there was chlorine. And now we have two OPCW whistleblowers coming out of the woodwork to declare that the report was phony. Jose Bustani, the first uh, director of the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical, Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, actually interviewed and spoke with w those whistleblowers and declared that, concluded that they were right, that this appeared to have been a false flag. Um, Jonathan Steele and a number of journalists have met with them as well and concluded that they were extremely credible. And so we're left with uh, the whole media, the whole mainstream media ignoring this catastrophic deception in which the US public was lied into war again by this vast uh, perception management apparatus and by the Trump administration. We should be outraged about it, but most people don't know about it. The and media was all a, over it. And yeah. a second whistleblower uh, basically showed that the chemical levels uh, in this building were no different than on street level. Exactly. Uh, so, These are real scientists. Right. And yeah. what I find even more appalling, and it's not the first time, but U.S. Uh, Trump drop bombs before inspectors even went in there. So talk about forming a narrative. Yeah, there were it was it was not just a rush to judgment, it was a rush to bombing to prevent the inspectors from arriving in time. But what we did have in this case, 
I mean, remember 2017, there was the Khan Sheikhoun uh, supposed sarin gas attack in Idlib, and, and that was an area that the press and inspectors couldn't even get to because it was controlled by Al-Qaeda, by these extremist elements. I mean, the rest of the world was terrified to go there because of who controlled the area. And so there was no chain of custody for the OPCW investigation about that. Basically, they trusted a bunch of um, extremist proxies and the Turkish government, which was funding and arming them, to provide them with the samples from the scene. So there's no way we can trust what happened there. But we should be asking a lot of questions. First, why is Bellingcat being celebrated? Why did it win an Emmy for this documentary about them? Just as the White Helmets won an Oscars, how our culture, our popular culture is being used to instill support for regime change wars and deceptions, interventionist deceptions. Um, you know, we should be asking how the OPCW is, why the OPCW is stonewalling reporters and refusing to discuss this. We should be asking about, you mentioned Newsweek refusing to run a story on this. Newsweek ran countless stories working hand in glove with the PR, the public relations group that worked for the White Helmets, the Syria campaign, to push intervention in Syria. So we should be asking questions about the mainstream media and supporting the journalists who are actually asking these questions and doing this work. And then finally, and most disturbingly, we should be asking who those bodies were that we saw and were told that these were the these supposed chemical weapons victims. Who were they and how were they killed and where are they buried? Were they killed by the extremist armed opposition? Were members of the White Helmets involved? in setting them up and filming them. Who is involved in this and where are the bodies? Because no one will tell us where those bodies are. And obviously one of the strategies is when you present facts, uh, you're then propagandized as an Assad apologist. Yep. Uh, that seems to be the playbook uh, of most of these outfits, even though they can't or don't even try to dispute the facts you just presented. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't be talking about Assad, and he probably would still be having dinners with Nancy Pelosi and John Kerry and, um, you know, probably, you know, um, Tulsi Gabbard wouldn't have been the only person to visit him. And what she did was not to visit him and be, you know, pat him on the back, but to actually she was there to work on de-escalating this proxy war, which I think was much braver than what Pelosi and Kerry were trying to do. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't be even talking about him unless the U.S. had invested a billion dollars into this dirty war to carry out regime change and destroy an uh, independent state that just simply wasn't in the U.S. sphere of influence. It, it, none of us would even be thinking about it. And honestly, like, I, I, I didn't, when I was in Syria, I didn't meet many Assadists. Um, most of the people I met were very critical of the government, but they just didn't want the state to collapse. And they'd say, well, Assad and Assad, and Assad kept the state together and that's the best we can say for him. And then they would you know, proceed to complain about um, sanctions, which were fueling corruption um, and the, the destruction of their economy before their eyes. These were the things Syrians talked about, or they would complain about the security state, about how this, when the state comes under attack, um, the reformist elements in the government are immediately rolled 
over and steamrolled by this harsh security state. And so that's what they have to deal with now, thanks to this uh, intervention and dirty war. So it was hard to even meet Assadists there. Um, what does it even mean to be an Assadist? What does it represent? I can understand when someone says, you know, you're a communist or a Marxist, or they use this word tanky now, but I don't even know what this means. Um, what it simply is, is a way to kind of shut people down, to blacklist people, and to, um, you know, further marginalize independent journalists who are actually asking the hard questions that everyone should be asking. Max, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for taking the time, and, and we'll stay in touch uh, as you announce uh, what you plan to do uh, in response to your false arrest. Thanks again. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for what you're doing. Okay. Hope you enjoyed that last video. Hop on over to statuscoup.com where you can sign up for our email list and become a member for as low as 5 to $10 a month. Membership is how we grow. That's statuscoup.com slash join. And remember, join our email list so we can grow the revolution with you. Okay.